Glad to have you back, Stew Heads. It's a non-political but positively presidential episode of Remnant Stew. I'm your host, Leah. And I'm Steve. Settle in and get comfortable, and we'll tell you the little-known facts about our commanders-in-chief, starting from George Washington all the way to George W. Bush. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. Happy President's Day! For those of you who don't know, President's Day is a federal holiday in the United States that was established in 1971. Before that year, George Washington's birthday was celebrated as a national holiday on his actual birthday, which was February 22nd. Oh, but wait, it wasn't really on February 22nd. He was actually born on February the 11th. However, that was uh, February 11th, 1732. But 20 years later, England and the colonies adopted the Gregorian calendar and abandoned the Julian calendar, which thus moved his birthday 11 days forward to February 22nd. Now that sounds confusing. Yeah, you think day, everybody thinks daylight savings time is confusing. This <laughs> yeah. whole calendar thing was yeah, let's, really let's bad. Yeah, let's just add 11 days to the calendar. But, uh, well, maybe we'll delve into that another day, going from, uh, from the Gregorian to the uh, Julian calendar. Anyway, the Uniform Monday Holiday Act of 1971 was an attempt to create more three-day weekends for the nation's workers. You know, yes. you've got to really respect a Congress that takes on the tough issues like that. <laughs> I can get behind that, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, they established the third Monday in February as a day to honor all presidents. And the fact that Abraham Lincoln's birthday is February the 12th kind of fits in nicely to the, to the new general holiday. Uh, being the history buffs we are here at at uh, Remnant Stew, we thought we would dig in and explore some presidential trivia with you. One particular source that has been really helpful in preparing this program was a book called Presidential Anecdotes, written by a gentleman named Paul F. Bowler, B-O-L-L-E-R, Paul F. Bowler Jr., and published by Oxford University Press. We are grateful that Oxford Press has granted us permission to read several uh, excerpts directly to you from Mr. Bowler's book. So let's get started, shall we? All right. So let's start with. Well, we're going to start with presidents. Let's start with the first president, George Washington. Washington. George Washington served as president from 1789 to 1797. Mr. Bowler states in his book that Americans during and after Washington's time held him in extremely high esteem. Throughout the 1800s, he was almost deified as if he were somehow superhuman. Most historians agree that Washington was very effective in leading the new government. His ability to work with Congress in tackling many of the young nation's problems set a standard for other presidents to follow. At his funeral in 1799, Washington was eulogized by the Revolutionary War General Light Horse Harry Lee, which, by the way, is a terrific <laughs> name, don't you think? He eulogized Washington as being, quote, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. That's a very good eulogy, isn't it? But what you might not know about Washington was that he was also often first at the fire. First at the fire. That's a good, that's a good slogan, too. <laughs> uh, according to Baller's book, Washington, it is said, was an enthusiastic fireman. He began running to fires when he was a kid and was still running to them in his old age. Only a few months before his death, 
He was riding his horse down King Street in Alexandria, Virginia, when a fire was discovered near the market. He stopped his horse at once and yelled at some men who were standing idly by. A quote from General Washington, President Washington, It is your duty to lead in such matters. Follow me. <laughs> Great yeah, voice. George Washington <laughs> says that to you. You just get up off your idleness and start following him, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing his reins to his servant, he leapt to the ground and he began pumping a hand-cranked fire engine into which a few boys were languidly dumping buckets of water. Cheering citizens rushed to aid him, and within a few minutes, the old engine was throwing the highest stream of water that had ever gushed from the pipe. That was from presidential anecdotes. I, I had no idea that so he was a fireman. He loved putting out fires. No and it idea. was at a time when uh, there were really no organized fire brigades. It was all pretty much volunteer. And right. So it was very right. And wasn't that uh, invented by Ben Franklin? Yeah. Actually, Ben so. Franklin did uh, invent the first fire department in Philadelphia, I believe. Uh, and, you know, it was the time when wooden structures were common and whole towns could burn That's down right. pretty easily right. if the fire got going. Well, after George Washington was John Adams. And uh, you might know that uh, he, John Adams was the second president from 1797 to 1801. But his son, John Quincy Adams, also served as president from 1825 to 1829, the seventh president. It isn't uncommon for fathers and sons to have disagreements, even heated arguments. The second president, John Adams, and his son, John Quincy Adams, who became the seventh president, were no exception. President Washington thought highly of uh, younger John Q. Adams so much that he appointed him as the United States ambassador to the Netherlands, which happened to be the second country to recognize the U.S. after our Declaration of Independence. You guess who the first country was? Not England. No, it was France. <laughs> it was France trying to stick it to England. So anyway, George Washington thought John Adams' son was pretty responsible, even a pretty responsible young man, and gave him the important role of being ambassador to the Netherlands. Uh, in 1796, Washington moved him to the new American embassy in Lisbon, Portugal. However, when uh, the young Adams stopped in London on his way to Lisbon, he learned that his father now, who had become president, had changed his assignment and wanted him to go to the embassy in Prussia. According to Mr. Baller's book, the young diplomat was upset by the news. He thought it was improper to accept an appointment from his own father. He wrote his father an anecdote that he had heard in London. It seems that Louis XIV, the story went, was expressing surprise at the stupidity of one of his own ambassadors in his own court, and he said he must be the relative of some minister. Said young Adams, I have no desire to be the applicant for a similar reflection. Well, President Adams was angry when he read this, but mostly about being compared to a mere minister. <laughs> <laughs> he went on to tell his son that President Washington himself said that John Q. Adams was the most valuable public character we have abroad, and that he insisted that Adams not withhold merited positions from him simply because he was his own son. So George Washington stepped in to... Calm the waters between father and son. <laughs> Adams is there. And can you imagine having an argument with your dad through letters? Right. You know? <laughs> letters overseas, too. <laughs> That's right. It took weeks to get there. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interject right in here real quick and say that uh, there was an early American tradition of naming children after presidents. Right. Uh, it's not so common now, but quoting from a 2017 article in Time magazine by Merrill Fabry, in the U.S., presidents have long been seen as exemplars of national values, which made their names particularly meaningful as they were both familiar and carried positive associations. 
Frank Nussel, author of The Study of Names, A Guide to the Principles and Topics, says that sometimes a famous person will have caught the consciousness of the public and a lot of people name their children after a famous person, hoping that giving them this name, they'll have some of the characteristics of that person. So in a sense, says Nussel, it's it's sort of like name magic. By using the name (laughs) of a famous person, that will rub off on their child. Well, you can understand that. Right. So the idea that a name could provide a link between a newborn and a great man continued at least until the mid-20th century. Uh, again, not so popular today. The John F. Kennedy Library has a small section of correspondence about babies named after him. Right. Many letters speak of the honor it is for Kennedy and the kindness of parents to do so. One father wrote a handwritten letter to tell Kennedy of his newborn. Yes, we named it. It. He says it. <laughs> we named it after you and surely hope it brings you the very best of luck. <laughs> so in that vein, I just have to say, after you talk about John Adams and John Quincy Adams, right. That my great 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 grandfather was named John Adams. Okay, and we're not entirely sure if he was named after the president because John's a pretty fairly right. common name, and uh, and Adams was already their last name. Right. But he was born in 1815, just a few years after John Adams's presidency, mm-hmm. so it's possible. Now his grandson, though, was named John Quincy Adams. Now that's uh, it's hard to get away from that one. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So and we so we do know that it was na- he was named after the president and so that's my great grandfather right and he wanted to carry on the tradition so he named his fourth child john uh-huh. but it was his fourth daughter <laughs> okay so i have a great aunt named john uh, not john nice. quincy though like the boy named sue right okay. well and they gave her the name the middle name nell so oh, no. so okay. they feminized it a little bit and she's yeah. still alive at 103 oh. i think oh she's listening yeah maybe <laughs> we'll see if she knows how to do podcasts but uh but she was the baby of the family for a while until my grandfather was born. And so mm-hmm. my grandfather carried on the tradition. I have an uncle, a first cousin, and a first cousin once removed, all named John Quincy Adams. And in spite of all of that, we are not related to the presidents, at oh. least not directly anyway. Well, you know, John Quincy Adams was so highly respected that after he only served one term as president, when he went back home, his people asked, people in his neighbor, neighborhood asked him if he would run for Congress, and he did served in the Congress for the next 20 years and actually died almost at his desk serving in the Congress, John Quincy Adams. Um, Speaking of John Quincy Adams, his father, John Adams, uh, 1797 to 1801, and Thomas Jefferson, 1801 to 1809, um, have a very interesting connection between them. When Adams uh, ran for re-election in 1800, he was defeated by Thomas Jefferson. Well, Abigail Adams, John's wife, wanted desperately to be known as the first first lady to live in the new president's mansion. (laughs) And so for two months, up until the end of Adams' term, the couple camped out in the unfinished building that became the White House. Adams (laughs) took the loss hard, and for many years afterward, he and Jefferson were not on speaking terms. Sour grapes. Yeah. Yeah. In In their later years, though, through a mutual friend named Benjamin Rush, the two aging patriots rekindled their friendship and exchanged several letters with each other. During the summer of 1826, the nation was anticipating the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Both Adams and Jefferson were in failing health. Uh, near the end of June, in fact, John Adams was visited by Daniel Webster. Uh, and when Webster asked how Mr. Adams was feeling, he replied, quote, I have lived in this old and frail tenement a great many years. It has been very much dis- dilapidated 
And from all that I can learn, my landlord doesn't intend to repair it, talking about his body. <laughs> uh, Mr. Bowler continues in his book, By Independence Day, Adams was confined to his bed. At dawn on July the 4th, he awakened and a servant asked him, Do you know, sir, what day this is? Oh, yes, responded Adams. It's the glorious 4th of July. God bless it. God bless you all. And then he lapsed into a coma. Early that afternoon, Adams awakened and exclaimed feebly, Thomas Jefferson survives. They were his last words, and he ceased to breathe at sunset about 6 p.m. that, that night of July oh, the 4th. Goodness. But what he didn't know was that several hundred miles away, Jefferson was also on his deathbed. On July 3rd, 1826, Jefferson was confined to his bed and sinking rapidly. At 11 o'clock in the evening, he whispered, this is the fourth? Nicholas B. Trist, his young lawyer friend who was at his bedside, couldn't bring himself to say, not yet, and he remained silent. This is the fourth? Jefferson asked again. This time, Trist nodded his assent. Ah, breathed Jefferson, and with a look of satisfaction on his face, he then sank into a deep sleep. The next day, July 4th, a little before 1 p.m., he ceased to breathe. Wow, uh, both, both, both of them. Both of them died uh, on July 4th, the exact 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. There was actually some, uh, some conspiracy theory that came, ar- came out around that. Um, the coincidence of Adams and Jefferson's death on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence came as an astonishing surprise to Americans. Um, many did kind of try to figure out, oh, you know, did, did, did doctors contrive this to happen? But uh, most people have kind of come to the point that it's pretty well documented that some people can prolong their time of death if it's for a certain, to, to wait to see a certain person. Right. You know, they or can certain, rally themselves. Right. And then, then at that time, they, 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 they run out of energy to carry it any further. And that seems to be the case of uh, Adams and Jefferson. Um, many ascribed the remarkable coincidence as a sign of divine authority. Daniel Webster, again, wrote, This striking and extraordinary coincidence is that of evidence that these men's lives have been gifts from providence to the United States and offers, pro- offers proof that our country and its benefactors are objects of his care. Five years later, the nation was stunned again when James Monroe, the last of the original patriots, passed away on July 4th, 1831. So July 4th, uh, interesting coincidence for some of those early founders. Mm. Now, I've got a great story here about Andrew Jackson. And not so much maybe about Jackson himself, but about his mother, his family. Um, Andrew Jackson, who served from 1829 to 1837 as our president, one of our most colorful presidents, Andrew Jackson, was raised by a woman who has been referred to as a Spartan mother. You you hear about tiger moms (laughs) these days. I've not heard the word Spartan mother before. Well, I can relate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you raised three boys, so you understand that. Jackson's father, who was also named Andrew Jackson, had been a farmer in Ireland. In 1765, he sold his farm in Ireland, and along with his wife, Elizabeth Betty Hutchinson Jackson, and their two small sons, Hugh and Robert, immigrated to the United States. They found their way to a Scotch-Irish community in the border area between North and South Carolina. In March of 1767, 
Andrew Jackson Sr. was killed in a logging accident, leaving his wife pregnant with the future president. Betty Jackson raised her three sons in the Appalachian wilderness during the hardships of the American Revolution. When Andrew was about five, his mother saw him crying one day. Stop that, Andrew, she ordered. Don't let me see you cry again. Girls are made to cry, not boys. Well then, mother, what were boys made for? Asked Andy. To fight, she told him. (laughs) (laughs) After that, he never cried again, and I think he did quite a bit of fighting. Um, (laughs) When Andy was about 12 and going to school one day, a fellow about 18 or 19 stopped him and gave him a pretty severe thrashing. Andy's uncle wanted to have the young man arrested and prosecuted for assault and battery. No, sir, exclaimed Jackson's mother. No son of mine shall ever appear in a complaining witness in a case of assault and battery. If he gets hold of a fellow too big for him, let him wait till he grows some and then try it again. (laughs) (laughs) I can hear her saying, I'll give you something to cry for. Right, there you go. Now, it's interesting. Both of Jackson's brothers died fighting in the American Revolution. And Betty Jackson, his uh, his mother, uh, volunteered to go to Charleston to help nurse some captured American soldiers who were languishing in British prisoner of war ships in Charleston Harbor. There she contracted cholera and she died. Andrew was only 14 when he lost his mother, lost both of his brothers. Wow. And so tells you a little bit about the, the spirit that he uh, had, though, in order to, to continue growing into the man that he became. He always remembered her final words of advice to him before she left. She warned him not to lie, steal, or quarrel as long as his manhood was not in jeopardy. She also cautioned him not to look to the courts for relief against slander. Settle them cases yourself, she advised. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he did. (laughs) Good advice. And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. So for today's oddity... Uh, museum. This is about museums. We love museums. Oh, yeah. And in 2014, Time Magazine published a list of the 10 weirdest museums in the world. So I'm not going to mention them all, but here's some highlights. There's the Museum of Bad Art. Brooklyn and Somerville. How do you know? <laughs> I'm thinking I could be, I could get displayed right. there, right? Uh, that's in Brooklyn and Somerville, Massachusetts, in the USA. Then there's the Avenos or Avenos. I think it's Avenos Hair Museum in Avenos, Turkey. Okay. <laughs> uh, and and Time Magazine says it features a huge collection of hair gathered from more than 16,000 women. And if that doesn't sound creepy enough for you, it's situated in a small, dark cave. So have you been there? Hair Museum in yeah. a cave. No, somehow <laughs> so, we missed that one. So if you guys go to Turkey, that, that's a place to go. This one is interesting to me. Uh, it's the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, USA. That's got to be in USA. That's Right, a, cryptozoology. I, I would love to go there. Then there's the Museum of Broken Relationships in Zagreb, <laughs> Croatia. And uh, and I have to clarify what that one is. It's love shack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This museum evolved from a traveling exhibition revolving around the concept of failed relationships and their ruins, its website explains. Uh, visitors are encouraged to donate artifacts from their own broken relationships as a chance to overcome an emotional collapse. So things like rings, clothing, Valentine's Day gifts, among other stranger objects like a wooden watermelon. I don't. You're going to have to visit to figure that one out. 
How does a wooden watermelon exemplify a broken relationship? I don't know. Maybe somebody Did they fight over who was going to get to keep it, or, or who was going to have to take it, or who threw it at <laughs> whose head. I don't know. <laughs> and following that, in the in the spirit of broken relationships, if you if you've gone there, maybe then after that you would want to go to the Museum of Medieval Torture Instruments. Right, I've that's in that Amsterdam, yeah. right in Netherlands. Then there's the Kansas Barbed Wire Museum in La Crosse, Kansas, USA. Interesting. Uh, So, but I want to talk about one specific museum that made the list. Have you ever been to Delhi, India? No, I haven't been there. Okay. Well, located in that city is the Sulub International Museum of Toilets. (laughs) The the museum established in 1992 traces the history of the toilet for the past (laughs) 4,500 years. And it ranked. Museum of Porcelain? That's right. It ranked third on Time Magazine's list of the weirdest, 10 weirdest museums. So, but here's the thing. I, I think in India, like, they don't even have. Uh, toilets, many toilets, right? Thinking, like they holes yeah, in the ground. Often. That's what I think. But anyway, but this this museum is all about it. And uh, so again, quoting Time Magazine, it says, "From simple chamber pots to elaborate decorated Victorian mm-hmm. toilet seats, and I'm picturing like velvet and gilded. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you'll see it all at Sulab uh, Sulab International <laughs> Museum of Toilets, tracing the entire evolution of toilets throughout human history. There's even a toilet disguised as a bookcase." as well as a replica of the throne of King Louis the 14th this king is used is believed to have used this while conducting court sessions so maybe that's where the the term throne okay. comes from horse on the throne there okay you go. so all of that just to get to this this was my favorite item in the museum the reason i looked all of this up is so that i uh, because i heard about this it's a replica of a medieval mobile toilet it was made into the shape of a treasure chest the English would use it. <laughs> the English would use it while camping out for a hunt. So why a treasure chest? Well, it's for the same reason that people today put Amazon boxes full of dog poop on their porches to give <laughs> would-be robbers a nasty but well-deserved surprise. Oh, Robin Hood, take that! Okay, there you go. Oh, that's a good one. Now, you know, I've seen this sign not too not too far away, from, actually in Houston, Texas, for the Funeral Museum, but I've never been to there. I uh, have been to there. Have you been I there? have been to it, and it is very fascinating. <laughs> so back to our regularly scheduled episode. Back to our presidents. Well, episode. This, uh, this has been in the news somewhat recently. President John Tyler from, uh, uh, served from 1841 to 1845. Uh, John Tyler was actually born in 1790. And he was the first vice president to become president due to the death of the president. William Henry Harrison was elected president in 1840. At age 68, he was the hero of the Battle of Tippecanoe. You remember this symbol, the slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler Tyler too, right? He was the oldest elected president at the time. To lay whispers concerned about his age, uh, Harrison gave a long two-hour inaugural address in a blizzard without wearing an overcoat or a top hat. Yeah, that's going to go well. Yeah, three weeks later, he developed pneumonia, and he died on April 4th, 1841, having served only one month as president. Yeah, those are some good political advisors. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) We'll show them. John Tyler was actually at home in Virginia playing a game of marbles with his boys when a courier rode up to his house with a message that Harrison had died. Now, Tyler believed that the Constitution stated that he was now the president. However, some in Congress argued that he should not be called president, but merely acting president. But Tyler claimed all the rights and privileges of the chief executive. The president, he said, 
has been followed by all vice presidents since then. That didn't stop some of the members of Congress referring to him as his accidency. <laughs> you know, okay, so so you talked about, okay, you talked about George Washington and John Adams right. being revered, basically. Right, right. I think that era ended right yeah, there. Kind of, I kind of think after that, right, right, then we started <laughs> making fun of, of the presidents. Mm-hmm. Well, John Tyler married his first wife, Letitia Christian Tyler, in 1810, and together they had four daughters and three sons to, li- uh, to live to maturity. Letitia died from a stroke on September 10, 1842, during Tyler's time as president. On June 26, 1844, less than about a year and a half later, Tyler married Julia Gardner while he was still president. Tyler was 53 at the time. Julia Gardner was 23, actually That's, younger than three of his children. That is unbelievable. And that he did that as president. <laughs> as president, right. Wow. Uh, together, they also had seven children. Their fifth child was a son named Lion Gardner Tyler. He was born in 1853. He became an educator, and he was actually president of William and Mary College, which is located in Virginia, I believe. His first wife, Anne, died in 1921, and like his father, Lion Tyler also remarried a much younger woman named Sue Ruffin. She was, in fact, 35 years younger than Lion. My goodness. Together, they had two sons, Lion Gardner Tyler, who was born in 1925, and he died just recently in May of 2020, and Harrison Ruffin Tyler, born in 1928, and at this current time that we're recording this right now, he is still alive at the age of 92. That's correct. President John Tyler, who was born in 1790, still has a grandson living at today. this time today that is crazy that's pretty crazy. amazing <laughs> now here's a nice story about zachary taylor you don't hear too much about zachary taylor do you he was a, actually uh, had been a professional soldier for 40 years he served uh, as president from 1849 to 1850 he died in office um there was some actually they actually exhumed his body not too long ago to try to uh, somebody was trying to prove that he had been poisoned, and um, I don't think they proved it. I think he may have got a hold of some bad strawberries, from what I've, what I've heard. <laughs> anyway, he had been a professional soldier for most of his life, uh, for many years before he entered politics. In fact, he didn't really enter voluntarily. It was uh, suggested that he, you know, it was kind of pushed upon him. He was nicknamed Old Rough and Ready, but he was loved by the men <laughs> who served under his command. He had a tremendous reputation for not taking himself too seriously. Even though he led numerous successful military campaigns, he remained humble and kind. He was well known for his avoidance of military pomp and ceremony. He didn't like wearing his officer's uniform. It was often led to him being mistaken for a simple farmer rather than the gifted military leader that he actually was. One time during the Florida campaign, Taylor stopped off in a tavern at Newmansville with officers on his staff for a glass of beer. A young man on his way to report to duty entered the place and approached their table. Fresh from West Point, he wore a linen duster to protect his uniform. Taylor, as usual, was wearing a homespun sack coat and a broad-brimmed star, uh, straw hat. <laughs> well, old man, said He looked the, like a scarecrow. Yes. <laughs> well, old man, said the young man as he sat down, how are the Seminoles now? I believe, sir, Tyler replied, that they are giving considerable trouble. They are, are they, said the young man. We will have to see to that. I am an army officer, and I am on my way to take a hand. 
Have a glass of beer with me, old codger, you and your neighbors. Taylor and his companions rose, toasted the young man, and then boarded the stagecoach, leaving him alone in the tavern. A day or so later, when the young West Pointer reported for inspection, he faced the old codger, and now in a colonel's <laughs> uniform. Horrified, he stumbled through the ordeal and afterward asked some of the other officers what he could do to make amends. Oh, with Colonel Taylor, just forget it, they, said, they told him. But the young man didn't feel like letting the matter drop, so he went to Colonel Taylor's tent to apologize. My young friend, said Colonel, uh, Colonel Taylor calmly, let me give you a little piece of advice which may be of advantage to you. Never judge a stranger by his clothes. <laughs> Good <laughs> advice great. to even today, right? Yep. Now for today's bookshop spot, the part of the show where we take you on a virtual tour of one of the most magical of places, an independent bookshop. The bookshop spot for today is focused on McDonald's Book Exchange, which has been in business in Redmond, Washington, oh, so Redmond. The, the great state of Washington, for over 45 years. Another very long time. Very long time. Right. That's great, great. It was started by Doug McDonald and purchased by current owner Anne St. Germain in 1998. Anne says that their inventory of used books comes from their customers. So, because it's a book exchange, the books are priced at about a third of the retail price. They nice. give a combination of cash and bookstore credit to customers for the books that they bring in. See their website for full details. Oh, nice. They have very loyal, loyal customers, she says. Some that like to just stop and say hi and hang out. Right. Customers who live far away that plan their trips around to the area around the bookstore. You see the Space um, Needle. You, you go across the Puget Sound and you go to the bookstore. That's that sounds right. Sounds like a great trip. They also have customers who find old bookstore credit slips and bring them in to see if they can still use them. And the good news is credit slips never expire. How about that? Oh, wow. Ann says we're like the neighborhood bar without the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Even it's where everybody no knows your name. Uh, it's a place for our ha- our customers uh, to hang out for friendship, the, the opportunity to talk with our friendly staff, and a place to meet up with friends. McDonald's Book Exchange is the perfect spot to visit, browse, and purchase books. Uh, she also says that uh, we carry previously watched DVDs, gently used board games, and books on CD. One of their, her nice. customers sells jeweled bookmarks in the store and donates all the funds raised to a nonprofit for animal safety. Oh, cool. uh, our philosophy is to help those in need in our community and protect our environment. And they, they go on to do a whole lot of other things to, that right in that vein. They're very socially conscious. Uh, they collect used cell phones for women fleeing domestic violence. They have multiple food food drives to support the hungry in the area. They sell raffle basket tickets to assist families in need, collect socks and hygiene items for the homeless, and send books to uh, other locations that would be able to use them. So if you're in the Redmond, Washington area, please stop by McDonald's Book Exchange. But if you can't visit in person, of course, visit their website at www.mcdonaldsbookexchange.com. That sounds like a great place to visit. Okay, so I I took the presidents after 1900. So here we go. William Howard Taft. He served from uh, 1909 to 1913. Right. And uh, and so, what do you know about Taft? Anybody? I know, know that he had uh, Teddy Roosevelt had kind of wanted him to be his follow up follower. Um, and then also know he was the Supreme Court justice afterwards. That's his right. That's right. right. 
So despite being the only man to serve a as both— A big guy, too, right? That's right. That's, that's, there's my point. That despite being the only man to serve as both U.S. president and Supreme Court justice— Taft was better known for his size. Now, here's the thing. He weighed in at a little over 350 pounds, which right. I, I think that was a big deal back then. I right. know several people that, that fit that <laughs> bill you know, today. Right. But he was, he was well known for being – he was famously fat. Let's just put it he that way. He could be an NFL lineman. And, uh, and there's a story about him becoming stuck in a White House bathtub. That story, however, that. most likely is not – true it's just that a story or a tall tale there's no documentary evidence to back it up and the story didn't arise until two decades after taft left office Mm. so in his book dead presidents an american adventure into the strange deaths and surprising afterlives (laughs) of our nation's (laughs) leaders which sounds like a really interesting book author brady carlson says the funny part is that while taft was president the white house got a tub that was so big a, po- a president couldn't possibly get stuck okay. in it okay they, they ordered an extra large size then. well okay so according to history.com just weeks after taft's 1908 election the captain of a warship carrying the president-elect to inspect the the panama canal requested a supersized bathtub capable of holding the heftiest man ever to occupy the Oval <laughs> Office good. so far. And uh, because, you know, anything could happen now. On ships. So since no Taft-sized basin could be found, a Manhattan company specially crafted the largest solid porcelain tub ever made for an individual. It was more than seven feet long. 41 inches wide and weighed a ton, literally. Literally a ton. A photograph in the February 1909 issue of the journal Engineering Review showed the pond-like presidential bathtub with four (laughs) men sitting comfortably inside. So four men in a tub. And we have that picture. Uh, The article goes on to say that newspapers reported that similarly uh, spacious tubs were installed in the White House on Taft's presidential yacht and inside his brother's summer home in Texas. Because I guess he wanted to take a bath yeah, at his brother's house. For sure. <laughs> Next up is Warren Harding, <laughs> who served from 1921 to 1923. He was a rascal. So, <laughs> well, a presidential rumor is that Warren Harding's death may have occurred because he was poisoned by his wife. Harding was void- voted into office in 1921, and on the evening of August 2nd, 1923, halfway through his third year in office, President Warren, Warren Harding died in a San Francisco hotel at the age of 57. He was a popular president, and people were shocked at the sudden death of his uh, uh, at his sudden death. Demanded answers from doctors. The decision by Harding's wife Florence to skip an autopsy for her husband and have his body embalmed one hour after his death really set the rumor mill yeah that'll that'll kick in the rumors right there conspiracy theories that's right so let's just go ahead and drain them you know (laughs) (laughs) let's get this show on the road come on on. (laughs) well and and she may have been a little fed up with him right yeah he was a known philanderer right so so i think maybe he added a little to that rumor mill as well later in 1930 gaston means who Mm -hmm. lives up to his name right he was an embittered former Harding administration official, published a book entitled The Strange Death of of President Harding. In the book, along with other tall tales and scandals, Means claimed that Florence Harding murdered her husband by poisoning him. Gaston Means, however, was well known to be a notorious con man, liar, and bootlegger. Mm -hmm. I can't talk. 
He died in prison in 1938 after being convicted for a con he tried to pull related to the Charles Lindbergh Jr. kidnapping. So angry at not being paid what was owed to her, Mr. Means' ghostwriter, Mary Dixon, later exposed the book as a complete fabrication. Uh Still, rumors are hard things to kill, and speculations surrounding Harding's death are still, to this day, being debated. But there were five doctors uh, at the hotel attending to Harding when he when he died, and it had been determined before Harding's death that he had an enlarged heart and that he tired easily. So most historians today accept the fact that Harding died from a heart attack brought on by ample evidence of his apparent cardiac problems. Right. So next up, we have Dwight D. Eisenhower. Mike. Yes. Uh, 1953 to 1961. He was the first president to use a helicopter while in office. So helicopters have been used by the military since 1944. And at Eisenhower's suggestion, the Secret Service approved the use of helicopters for a means of more efficient and safer travel for the president. I imagine he used them quite a bit while he was commander in chief, you know. He really did. Of the military, I mean, you know. (laughs) So on commander. Yeah. So he's like, so bring it on and let, yeah, yeah, let Let us use it. So on July 12th, 1957, Eisenhower became the first president to employ the new aviation technology when he rode in a two passenger Bell H-13J helicopter to Camp David as part of a test of White House evacuation procedures. And during his second term, he regularly used the helicopter to fly to Camp David and his farm in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Right. Now, speaking of Camp David, the camp got its name from good old Ike. Right. The site was originally a camp for federal employees and their families, but in 1942, during World War II, fear that it was not safe for President Roosevelt to cruise on his presidential yacht led to the camp being turned into a presidential retreat. So it was the perfect destination because it's secluded, mountainous, and a welcome break from the oppressive summer heat of the nation's capital. Roosevelt referred to the camp as Shangri-La. Shangri-La, yeah. When Eisenhower took office, though, he uh, he felt the camp was an unnecessary luxury, and he had plans to shut it down. But after visiting at the urging of a cabinet member, he actually changed his mind because he enjoyed it so much. He just couldn't handle that name, though. That was too, that was too <laughs> Roosevelt-y. <laughs> well, he, he said, he says, Shangri- and, and I'll quote, Shangri-La was just a little fancy for a car, uh, Kansas farm boy. Right. <laughs> so then he renamed it after his father and his grandson, who were both named David. Right. There was talk of the new name reverting back to Shangri-La after Eisenhower's presidency, but President Kennedy squashed that, and the retreat remained known even to this day as Camp David. Camp David, right, yeah. Okay, so let's get into a little bit funnier stuff. Jimmy Carter. Poor <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jimmy Carter. He, uh, he was a good guy. He very nice a guy, guy. Very nice man. Very involved in Habitat for Humanity. Yes. yes. So uh, so this brings us to 1977 through 1981. That's when he, he was president. So in August, though, of 1979, just before the frenzy of the 1980 campaign began in earnest, Jimmy Carter was taking some time to himself and fishing on a lake near his home in Plains, Georgia. That's where he was attacked by a killer rabbit. (laughs) Sharp teeth. (laughs) Monty Python, anyone? So at least that was the story press secretary Jody Powell told reporters. She didn't do him any favors by doing that. But Carter played it down a bit in a 2015 interview with Howard Kurtz. He said, quote, wild rabbits, all of them know how to swim. The former president explained the rabbit being chased by hounds leapt into the water and began swimming toward the boat. Carter simply used a paddle to shoo the rabbit away. 
There was nothing to it, Carter told Kurtz. <laughs> when Jody told it, it became very humorous and a, and a still lasting story. Lots of people have had tame bunny rabbits throw at them in swimming pools. <laughs> I, I don't know of anybody, <laughs> I don't but know, I don't know where do you get this information? <laughs> and said that they're rabbits. Lots of people. Of the story. <laughs> <laughs> and he stated their rabbits could swim too. <laughs> so this episode, known comically as Rabbit Gate, <laughs> became a huge deal, and it influenced how voters perceived Carter, and not in a good way. Yeah. Carter did not win re-election, and perhaps in sm- some oh, small wait. way. Due to an aggressive, panicked bunny rabbit. It seemed like, you know, he, he he tried so hard to do the right thing, but it never would work out quite, you know. He, and uh, he tried to micromanage things, and it just would always blow up, it seems like. Poor guy. <laughs> and we, we have a picture that the press took, because he, while he's fighting off this rabbit, right, yeah. they're standing on the on the shore, on the shore. taking pictures, right, you know. <laughs> and so we have a picture of him shooing the rabbit away, and then we have a cartoon of the killer rabbit attacking yeah, him. So Yeah, yeah what's up, Doc? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and speaking of animal attacks, Ronald Reagan, uh, who served from 1981 to 1989, was nearly strangled by a chimp. But it was before his presidency. Right. So as everyone knows, Ronald Reagan was an actor before he became president. And a source of embarrassment for him after he took office was a movie he had done called Bedtime, Bedtime for, for Bonzo. Bonzo, Bonzo yeah. <laughs> that features a chimpanzee. Connie, Connie, <laughs> Connie Jarson, <laughs> Johnny Carson, rather, called the movie a favorite old movie, a favorite of old movie buffs and Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> Reagan's critics said that he was the first president to be outacted by a chimp. Yeah. I've seen the movie, actually. It's not bad. Oh, real ash. It's not bad. I don't really have any desire. Uh, but I don't like monkeys. I'm kind of scared of them. <laughs> the chimp playing Bonzo was uh, actually a female chimp named Peggy that was trained to perform hundreds of actions on command, including crying, snarling, and puckering up for a kiss. So one day on on set, Reagan's necktie, for some reason, became a focus point for the chimp, and (laughs) she grabbed it with both hands and started to pull. Reagan's startled reaction was to pull away, which, of course, worsened the situation. He began to struggle to breathe as the tie tightened more and more in the tug of war. He was able to eventually get the necktie out of Peggy's grip, but by then the knot was so tight that a crew member had to come to Reagan's aid aid with a pair of scissors and cut him free. So... One of the reasons I don't wear neckties myself, and even though I don't work with actual monkeys. For but, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, neckties and uh, monkeys don't, right. don't go together. Um, okay, and then speaking of brushes with death, George I've never w. heard of this Bush. one before. Yeah. Well, I had heard it, but I had heard well, I had heard that he choked, but he really didn't choke. So okay, so George W. Bush uh, served from 2001 to 2009, but in in 2000. Two. In January of 2002, George W. Bush was enjoying some downtime watching football alone in his living quarters. He was snacking on pretzels when all of a sudden the president was waking up on the floor with his two dogs looking at him funny. So he had apparently passed out after a pretzel, and, and he says this, uh, and I quote, went down funny. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he hesitates to call it a choking incident since he was able to breathe. When he woke up, well, right. he immediately got. Oh, so when I heard this, I thought that he had choked, passed out, and somebody found him. Right. But that's not the case. He he woke up and he uh, went and alerted someone, and then he immediately got checked out by doctors who concluded that he'd had a 
Okay, here we go. Neurally mediated vasovagal syncope. Okay, (laughs) and what that means is the errant pretzel triggered the vagus nerve, which is the nerve that controls the heart, and that caused a drop in blood pressure and heart Hmm. rate. Coupled with the fact that George W. Bush, he had he just really had a a low resting heart rate. The doctors were kind of concerned about uh, already. And, and coupled with that, caused the loss of consciousness, resulting in a cut and bruised face as he hit something on, as he fell off the couch. Oh, wow. And we have a, a picture of that as well. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, he was able to get himself up to seek medical attention. So if he had actually choked and was not able to breathe, it's very likely he would have died before anyone even By himself, noticed yeah. it. Right. By himself watching, That's right. watching football. Hmm. I had not heard that story before. Hmm. Well, we've kind of gone in order from George Washington to George Bush. Uh, but uh, we are going to go back. We, we haven't uh, gone any, any beyond uh, George Bush uh, just because we want to stay out of the political limelight That's right, right. now. That's right. We don't want to get all political. Well, we want to go back uh, to the late 1800s, early 1900s uh, for our final story because it plays so well into our motto here at um, Remnant Stew, which is always to, to be kind. And uh, this involves a story uh, of William McKinley. William McKinley was president from 1897 to 1901. He was actually assassinated in 1901. Um, but I, I especially love this uh, story as kindness is, is really half of our closing motto here at Remnant Stew. One evening, President McKinley was having a hard time deciding which of two equally competent men to appoint to an important diplomatic post. Suddenly, he recalled an incident that had occurred on a stormy night many years before when he was just a young congressman from Ohio. He had boarded a streetcar in Washington, D.C., and he had taken the last empty seat in the rear. At one point, an old washerwoman carrying a heavy basket boarded the car and stood forlorn in the aisle. One of the men, whom McKinley was now considering for the post, had been sitting right in front of the old lady but shifted his newspaper in such a way as to seem not to see her. McKinley went down the aisle, picked up the basket of washing, and led the old lady back to to his seat. The man with the newspaper looking down did not see this. After reflecting upon this event, McKinley selected the other man for this position. According to McKinley's friend Charles G. Dawes, this candidate never knew that this little act of selfishness, or rather, this little omission of kindness had deprived him of that position which should have crowned his ambition of a lifetime. Pretty imagine every little act goes noticed. You know, That's right. Does not go unnoticed for sure. And now it's time, boys and girls, for the trivia challenge. Okay, so for today's trivia challenge, you know the drill. Uh, number one, like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew, uh, at Remnant Stew Podcast. Number two, like and share this episode post, Positively Presidential. Put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post, and the first person to do that will be the winner. Yay! We love we love it. Uh, we love the accolades that go your way for being the winner. <laughs> and so for this trivia question, one of the presidents that we mentioned here today was also in the daily habit of getting up early in the morning and bathing nude in the Potomac River. (laughs) 
Was it Taft? No, probably not. Well, uh, well I'll, tell <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what. It was before the Internet. Yeah, It was <laughs> not Taft. That's I a large that enough tub, I'd say. large enough tub. Which president enjoyed this daily nude dip? Remnants do is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode. Audio is produced by Philip Sinkfeld, the king of dad jokes. Yes. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod and voiceover by Morgan Hughes. You can connect with us through our Facebook and Instagram. And if you have an idea you'd like to hear us cover in a future episode, send us an email at staycurious at remnantstew.com. Before you go, please hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Head over to iTunes and leave us a review. We love seeing those reviews. It helps us out a lot. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, senator, campaign manager, bodyguards, and chauffeur. And until next time, remember, like William McKinley, please remember to be kind and And always always stay stay curious. curious.